the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now, here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. The uh, denomination we belong to is uh, the EPC, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. And I remember years ago, I don't know, uh, 2016, somewhere in there, um, our pastor said, there's an EPC pastor who's been arrested in Turkey, and I want to say his name, Andrew Brunson, and I want you to remember that and please pray for him. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, well, you know, it's a scary world and Turkey's a volatile place, and so we'll pray for Andrew. And I did pray for Andrew that day. Yes. But I have to say, I did not pray with a lot of fervor. Fervor. Yes, right. You know, I thought, well, okay, so, you know, we'll pray for Andrew Brunson, whoever that is. But thanks to our pastor, that that urgency didn't go away. No. Every week he would say, Please pray for Pastor Andrew Brunson. Please pray for Pastor Andrew Brunson. And so as weeks turned into months, which turned into the first year, by the end of that first year, we were like, wow, he's been in prison for a whole year? What's... And then we started to hear about news updates on the internet. I read news stories about Pastor Brunson in Turkey. And this this concerned me because, you know, the, after a while, of course, you're praying for someone and then you hear about them. And, and one time our pastor said they're worried about his mental condition because he's been in prison for so long and he's so fearful for his life. And I thought, what is that like? I remember at one point uh, a prayer request went out that we had to remember to pray for Andrew because he was in solitary confinement. Right. Now, you have to know that the reason that Andrew Brunson was arrested was just because. He was a pawn. He was a pawn. He was a pawn in a geopolitical struggle between Turkey and the United States and between a person who had been a part of a coup in Turkey who had um, found uh, solace here in America in the the state of Pennsylvania. Exactly. Turkey wanted him back. And so, and of course, the United States was like, you know, we can't give you this. We can't make this man go back to Turkey because you're going to kill him. Right. And so they said, well, if you're going to keep our guy, we're going to keep your guy. So then what happened from one Sunday morning on a, at the pulpit in our church to years go by and prayer. And then all of a sudden, Andrew Brunson, the pastor, becomes an international name. Right. So it becomes a story. The president talked about it. Uh, it was on news reports. It was all over the internet. It would show up on your on your social media feed, wherever it was. And all along, throughout this whole process, we had asked you all to pray for Andrew and to remember him. And especially as things were heating up, after he had his second trial and his third trial, we were asking you to pray for him and pray for him. Well, I'm happy to tell you that last week we got to sit down in a room with Andrew Brunson and his wife, Noreen. Andrew Brunson was eventually released thanks to the help of President Trump. And And so many people who worked behind the scenes and the millions of saints who prayed for him. So, as Cass said, we sat down 
and had a conversation. And we're happy to bring you that conversation in just a few minutes. Stay with us. It's the Ride Home with John and Kathy. Andrew and Noreen Brunson, we were with them last week. We'll air that conversation in just a few minutes. Please don't miss this. This is an incredible conversation where he talks about God's faithfulness. living and working for more than 20 years in Turkey. Pastor Andrew Brunson was arrested in 2016 and imprisoned. He served 735 days, more than two years. His case became an international flashpoint in the relations between the United States and the Middle East before Andrew was finally released. We sat down with Andrew and his wife Noreen last week to talk with them about their experience in prison and their long journey home. So, Andrew, for people who don't know your story, and I don't know if it's even possible to encapsulate uh, where you've been and what you've been through, could you just take a couple of minutes and, and describe who you are, what's happened, and where you are now? Yes, Noreen and I were in Turkey for 23 years uh, trying to start churches among uh, Turks. Turkey is the largest unevangelized country in the world. Most Turks have never met a Christian. And most cities don't have any church at all. So we were involved in uh, starting churches, and especially when the civil war in Syria heated up, many uh, refugees came into Turkey, and we were involved in humanitarian aid to them, but also telling them about Jesus. Uh, We were uh, arrested for deportation. Uh, We were held for 13 days together, but they didn't deport us. Instead, Uh, They ended up keeping us, and they kept me for two years. And uh, I was used as a bargaining chip by the Turkish government to try to extract concessions from the U.S. But there are two stories here. One is the human side, which involved religious persecution and a lot of political intrigue. Uh, But behind this, there is the what I would call the God story. And this is what many of your listeners were involved in, uh, is that God was raising up a, uh, a worldwide prayer movement. Uh, it's been called an unprecedented prayer movement focused on one person. So I became a magnet uh, for prayer from around the world, and God was using all of this prayer to prepare the conditions in Turkey for a powerful move. So this is what we were working for for years. God had told us to prepare for harvest, and... Uh, when I ended up in prison, I thought, I, how can I prepare for harvest in, in a prison cell? But sitting in a prison cell with uh, just broken and weak, where I'm just desperately trying to cling to God and hold on, uh, God was doing something very powerful outside, uh, using me as that magnet for prayer. And that's the God stories. The Turkish government, I say, stole two years from my life, uh, but God redeemed it. And he took what was intended to harm me and turned it around to do something pretty amazing. And by the way, I want to thank all of the listeners who prayed for me. That's just amazing uh, because they don't know me. (laughs) And God was doing this. Uh, God put me on people's hearts. It it was a move of God. The whole prayer movement was initiated by God, sustained by him, driven by him. And 
you will see that, yes, you were praying for me, and your prayers brought me out of Turkey. I wrote a wave of prayer out of Turkey, but you were involved in something so much bigger than that. There's something so much bigger that God was doing through these prayers. So we say keep an eye on Turkey in the years ahead uh, because God's going to use these prayers to transform the country. I think things are going to get much worse in Turkey before they get better. But God is actually going to use these uh, difficult conditions in Turkey to bring many people to himself because he often allows the things that we trust in to be shaken to get our attention. And that's what's happening in Turkey now. Noreen, you shared last night here at Grove City College that when you first got on the plane to move to Turkey (laughs) 23 years ago, you weren't excited about it. Uh, Talk about the plane ride back after Andrew had been released from prison, um, after it was all over and you were on your way back. Um, Can you compare and contrast your two plane trips? So yes, I I just knew that my life was over as I was heading to Turkey 25 years ago, 26 years ago, I guess by now. Um, I didn't want to go there, and I was so negative that it could only get better from there, and it really did. The Lord just tied my heart to that place, to that country, to the peoples living there, and uh, by about the four-year mark, I was just completely committed, and we planned to stay there forever. So when we were hurt that we were being deported, we were grieving that we were having to leave because... By this time, there was ministry. God had given us assignment. We had friends. We, you know, we we lived there. Our home was there. Um, so that was a shock. I think that the two years of imprisonment uh, tempered the. You know, we would have been. I would have been crying on the way out. Except that after the imprisonment, we were just so relieved to get out. So that that changed it. But when we were being held in the detention center together the first night, and Andrew was grieving that we we're leaving. Turkey. And he said, are you holding back? Are you not crying? Are you holding back? And uh, I told him that I was, I would cry on the plane when we left Turkish airspace. The reason is, as we were assigned into the detention center, and as we had uh, said, we, we understood we were being deported because we were a threat to national security. Right there in front of us, the official uh, got a phone call And then he uh, checked another box, which was involvement in terrorism related to us. And at that point, I was worried that something was very wrong. So I was concerned. Uh, Terrorism charges in today's Turkey lead to long prison sentences. So I thought that it would not be over. We would not be safe of these terrorism charges until we were literally out of Turkish airspace. So as we got in, as Andrew was... The last day on the last court session, as he was convicted suddenly, and we thought he's going back to prison. There's all of that. There was a few hours in hell, we could say. And then they said you could leave the country. So then there was a mad dash to go home, get some things, wait for the airplane that was being sent from Germany, and uh, make our way through all the media to the airport. And then we got into this section of the airport where all was calm. We were in a special section waiting for this to get on this private plane, Air Force plane, but I was still holding my breath and watching the map uh, in the plane as we took off and just waiting for us to leave that airspace. So when we left airspace, I knew it was done. We hugged. It's done. But I say we still do miss Turkey and love Turkey. We do. We just can't be there right now. Andrew, go back. Talk about that very first day in 2016 when you were arrested. So Noreen and I were 
called into a police station. We thought we were going to be picking up our long-term residence visas. So we went happily with no concerns. And then they surprised us by saying there's a deportation order and we're going to arrest you. They didn't have to arrest us to deport us. They could have just given us a date. You have to be out by a certain date. But they arrested us and they put us into uh, a detention center. It wasn't a very nice place. Uh, there were ISIS prisoners on in the other cells. So it was a pretty intense place. Uh, but they kept us together. So we were we were in the same cell together for 13 days, and we were isolated. That's when we knew something was going very wrong also because usually if they're going to deport an American, it'll happen within one or two days. Uh, but they didn't deport us. They kept us, uh, and they kept us isolated. The American consul tried to come in but was not allowed to. Lawyers tried to come in. They weren't allowed to. Uh, on the 13th day, Noreen was released uh, very suddenly, and then in the middle of the night, they moved me to a different detention center and kept me there for 50 days in solitary confinement. So that that was very difficult for me, uh, the isolation uh, and uh, my body just sleep deprivation. I couldn't sleep. I was so full of adrenaline. So it, it was uh, very difficult. Uh, after that, it got much worse <laughs> because then they for so for the first 63 days they just didn't say anything there were no charges everyone was just quiet they were just holding me uh and then they charged me with supporting a terror group being part of a terror group and uh they put me in a high security prison so when you go there yes then you're in handcuffs uh it's uh just concrete and razor wire they put me in a cell with built for eight people, but there were over 20 of us eventually in that cell, and you're there 24-7. Uh, you don't leave the cell for anything except if there's a visit with a lawyer or something like that. So in, in uh, a crowded cell, very intense. Everyone in the cell was a very strong Muslim. I was the only Christian uh, throughout my imprisonment. So that was... It had been difficult before, but this, I felt the full weight of the Turkish government coming against me there. And it was very, I could tell this is very, very serious. So they kept me uh, there for a number of months and eventually moved me to a maximum security prison, which was actually better for me. Uh, and I was in a smaller cell with just one or two other prisoners. Well, by the way, let me say I, I, I spent two years in the Turkish prison system, but I didn't know that it was going to be two years. So at one point, they had increased my charges to uh, three life sentences. It would bring an automatic three life sentences in solitary confinement. So that really felt like a death sentence. Uh, when I went on trial, after 18 months, they uh, finally brought charges against me. And all of this was, uh, there was a political uh, motivation to all of this. And uh, there was a judicial process, but but it was being driven by uh, political leaders, specifically by the president of Turkey. So I knew that uh, when they did put me on trial, finally, after 18 months, they finally issued charges. Before that, my file had been sealed, so uh, we didn't know why they were holding me. They didn't present any evidence. It was we, It was completely closed, so all I could do was sit in prison and wait. When the trial did start, uh, they had uh, 
lowered the charges to military espionage and involvement in a terror, terrorist group, which carried only 35 years in prison. <laughs> but that, for me, at 50 years old, was basically a life sentence. And I did not know until the day I got out that I would be released. So, Andrew, tell us how your imprisonment ended. So I was held in this maximum security prison for about a year. Then, under tremendous pressure from the U.S. government, they released me to house arrest. And I was kept in our apartment with a, an electronic uh, monitoring system. And our apartment was actually surrounded. The building was surrounded by 20, 30 police and military police at all times. They had uh, armored vehicle outside also. It wasn't to keep me in. <laughs> they had made me such a hate figure that they were having to protect me. <laughs> it was to keep people out from hurting me. So I did. Uh, I was on trial, and in my fourth trial session, they moved very quickly to convict me. And so they convicted me uh, uh, as a terrorist and sentenced me to prison and then released me for time served and told me I could leave the country, which really meant leave as quickly as possible, please. So then that there was that dash to the airport, to an Air Force plane, hoping that we could get out before a tweet or a comment from some political leader in the States would offend the Turkish president, and then he would change his mind and put me back in prison. So it was, what a roller coaster from being convicted, and then a day later, we're in the White House. It's just a the emotional roller coaster. Thinking I'm going back to prison, sudden release, back to the States. I see my kids, you know, waiting at Andrews Air Force Base, lined up as a plane comes in. We, we both cried. <laughs> and... Uh, what a what an emotional roller coaster that day was! But what a wonderful day! Only God could do that, from from conviction in the court to the White House in in a day. So, Andrew, uh, you talked about early in your time in Turkey that uh, someone showed up at your church with a gun and a shotgun, and you subdued him in a bear hug, and the press touted you as the Rambo priest. And then from there, you go into prison, and you become something else. And you know, as we prayed for you, and as millions did around the world, wondering what your spiritual and your mental condition was in prison, and that deterioration of being alone in isolation. Can you talk about that and and that separation in some ways from God and your intentionality of turning your face towards God no matter what? So the Rambo priest thing came from once I was in prison uh, and they were saying that I was a CIA uh, agent and a special forces officer and a spy, all these different things. Uh, then they dredged that up from years before. By the way, I, wouldn't, I don't know if subdued is the right word. I would say I was desperately hanging on to the guy so he wouldn't go into the church with the shotgun. So, uh, <laughs> so they said, see, this was his special CIA training that, uh, that allowed him to, you know, this is why he's the Rambo priest. Anyway, uh, I did uh, 
have different expectations when I went into prison, just from reading biographies uh, that present very strong figures. And they're, they're my heroes as well. Uh, they go through struggles, and they, they're very strong through them. And so I expected uh, the same thing would happen to me, that I would have a sense of God's presence, a real sense of strength, of joy, and of grace. And I say I did have a lot of grace, but it was unfelt. I wasn't aware of it, although it surrounded me and, and sustained me. So I broke. Uh, there were several things that led to this. One was uh, terrible isolation. I was the only Christian, uh, and there was no no one else from my faith to encourage me, to correct me when I was wrong, to pray with me. And I had uh, doubts and questions and no one to to answer these. And I also did not have a sense of God's presence, which really surprised me. I thought this is the most difficult test I've ever gone through, this is when I most need your presence, uh, a sense of your presence. So this, uh, the isolation, the uncertainty, not knowing what was going to happen to me, and a total loss of hope, uh, as well as all the spiritual questions I was having, uh, broke me. And I broke repeatedly and uh, went very far down. Uh, was suicidal at times. But that's not the whole story. Uh, I broke, but then God began to rebuild me. And he never abandoned me. <laughs> he just I just felt that way. And there was a turning point where I began to fight more deliberately and intentionally for my relationship with God. And there are a number of steps I took in that. But it became a daily, a daily fight to turn myself toward him, to turn toward him and not away from him, uh, to put away the questions and doubts and offense that I had toward God and to lock those away and say, I, I don't need the answer to my questions to have a relationship with you. And I just focused myself on him every day, throughout the day, repeatedly. And that was cooperating with him in the rebuilding process. So I, I positioned myself so that then he was able to to rebuild me. So I think of the first year especially as being a year of breaking and the second year as a rebuilding year. So I came out of prison not broken and uh, shattered, but it was still hard. The second year was still very, very difficult. It was a daily battle. But I came out, uh, I think, rebuilt and and much stronger. Andrew, we hear daily reports about Turkey and the Kurds, the Russians, the Syrians, and ISIS. Can you give us some insight as to what you think is going on between them? So in prison, I had a dream that came from God. I don't have these very often, but God did use dreams sometimes in the Bible to communicate with people. And and I I had one of these in December of 2016. I had just been put in a high-security prison, and uh, in my dream, I saw that Russia, Turkey, and Iran began to move together in a very dark alliance. Uh, this was very frightening, and I, I woke up just uh, overwhelmed with uh, with fear about what this meant for me, uh, because I thought if they if Turkey moves away from its alliances with the West, then uh, that will have the U.S. will have very little leverage <laughs> to apply to get me out. 
Uh, and as it was, I did spend almost two, you know, after that, almost two more years in prison. But the significance of the dream was that the timing, uh, at that time, Turkey and Russia were not getting on well at all. Turkey had shot down a Russian fighter jet, and uh, Russia had responded with sanctions that had really uh, hurt the Turkish economy, and the Turkish president had actually had to apologize publicly, which is a very difficult thing uh, for him. Uh, And Iran and Turkey historically are enemies, and they were all on opposite sides of the war in Syria. So the idea that they would move together was very counterintuitive. Within a few days of having this dream, the, a Turkish policeman assassinated the Russian ambassador to Turkey. And I thought, this is going to drive Putin uh, from Russia and, and Erdogan apart. But it had the opposite effect. It actually brought them together. And they started moving together. And I remember telling uh, the American consul who visited me in prison, this is what God showed me is going to happen. Get me out of here. <laughs> but uh, uh, then I, I also talked with a, with a senior diplomat who knows Turkey very well some point and said this is what God showed me was going to happen Turkey will begin to move with them in a very dark way and he said oh that will never happen it just won't happen it's not in Turkey's best interest and I thought well that that is true it's not in their best interest but this is what I believe God showed me and over the the, the next three years as we look back as over the last three years uh, we can see that they've these three countries have begun to move together a great deal. Uh, And I think that uh, has many implications for for the future in uh, the relationship of Turkey to the West. And we see that Turkey is moving away. What's happening in Syria now is partly related to that. We see see Turkey moving away from the alliances it's had in the past and taking a different road. Uh, Islamism has grown considerably in Turkey uh, under uh, the present regime. And Turkey has become uh, one of the main supporters of more radical Islam in the Sunni Muslim world. And I think this is what we see here is a rise in the... Turkey was ahead of the Ottoman Empire, which ruled the Muslim world. And there's a resurgence of this in Turkey now, where they want to... Uh, extend their influence throughout that region, and it will be a negative influence because it will be uh, an Islamist influence. hear about geopolitical issues. There's talk of governmental factors only. But but what about the spiritual realities that are present or ongoing at the same time? Yeah, so one of the main uh, deficiencies I see in people analyzing the region, whether it's uh, political or State Department or military, would be uh, that they many of them do not have a place in their worldview for the spiritual world and spiritual motivations. And the Bible tells us that, Paul says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. So there are spiritual forces that we're not even aware of. Uh, And 
this is very true in the Middle East where where Islam uh, is very powerful. And it's not just a system of belief. There's actually a spiritual power behind it. And uh, this is what we see in Turkey, why I say there's the rise of that Ottoman spirit, you could say, that, that mentality that was there before. But there's a spiritual power behind it that that is affecting many things in that region. So it's not just a matter of saying what will be in Turkey's best interest. The same thing happened in the Cold War. You know, so many countries lined up behind the uh, Soviet Union. It wasn't to their, in their best interest economically, but they did it anyway because there were also spiritual factors involved there that drive people that they're not even aware of. From your perspective, Andrew, what do you think is happening with the Kurds? Yeah, so one of the things that... I said many times, and it got me into trouble, it was used against me in my trial, was that uh, God will shake the foundations of the things we trust in to get our attention. You know what? I need to rephrase that. I keep saying it the wrong way because that makes it sound like God is doing all the shaking. God will allow the foundations of the things we trust in to be shaken. There are many factors that shake uh, things, but he'll allow the foundations of the things we trust in to be shaken to get our attention. And we saw this with uh, the Kurds, that the war in Syria, many Kurds just flooded across the border. And we had a team uh, working on the Syrian-Turkish border uh, when there was still fighting going on in the area. The ISIS was attacking Kobani, an area that the Turks have now come into, invaded. And so Hundreds of thousands of Kurds flooded into that region. And they're actually cousins uh, on, on either side of the border. In Syria's side, they're related to the ones in Turkey. Uh, someone just drew a border through, you know, 100 years ago, and that was that. But the ones who came over from Syria were much more open uh, to asking questions they had never asked, to talking about Jesus. A number of them became followers of Jesus. Whereas the the Kurds right across the border in Turkey, they were hard. And so we saw completely different kinds of responses. And so we don't want hardship. We don't want war. Uh, We're distressed at what's happening right now in Syria with, with the invasion and what's happening to the Kurds. There's as a Christian, our approach now is to say decisions have been taken and they cannot be changed. Even if the president wanted to change his decisions, it's too late. Uh, so now we begin to pray, Lord, use this, God, use this and turn it around so that so that something good comes out of it. And God can do that. Only he can. And so our hope is that many Kurds will begin to look to Jesus during this time of hardship. So this is a question for both of you. Um, We prayed for you. Millions of people prayed for you. Uh, Your name was spoken on a regular basis in circles in our churches throughout the United States. And so there you are, Andrew, in prison. Noreen, uh, talk about that, about as you met Andrew and then you left him and then spoke to other people, the word got out and then God moved, the Holy Spirit moved and people around the world heard about Andrew's plight and how eventually prayer works and God was on the move. And here we are, hindsight, of course, we see at least this portion of the story, but it's a fabulous story about prayer and action. 
So after I I was released, I started uh, immediately to contact people I knew to ask them to pray. And then they took it to people they knew, and it went on and on and on in a supernatural way, just completely supernatural. It spread to so many countries, and um, I opened a public Facebook page just to put very, very basic things on that. But I would have people writing from different countries many times, and I'm like, this is just amazing. It's so it's so humbling to have, as Aunt, when I would tell Andrew, there are Chinese praying for you. There are Iranians praying for you. And that was very humbling because they're suffering. These are churches that are suffering. And so why would they pray for us? You know, it was really quite amazing to watch. This was one of the things Andrew would ask me at every visit. He, he, he needed hope. He wanted to, he would ask, are people still praying? He would, and I would say, yes, they're praying. As far as I know, it's not decreasing, it's increasing. That was my consistent answer because that's how it looked to us. We didn't even see the full scope of it. Um, he would always ask me, do you think, do you believe I'm going to get out? And I would say, yes, most of the time I thought he would. I wasn't, you know, you're never 100% sure. But uh, he said, why do you think that? And one of the reasons I would give is I said, because of this supernatural prayer movement. I believe that God is raising this up and that he's going to answer it and uh, that it's not. And as I would say, as time went on, at some point I realized this is prayer that God is pouring into Turkey too. It's not just for Andrew. Now at that point, it wasn't an encouragement to him. He'd say, I don't care. Just let me out of it. You know, at that point, you, you don't care about the rewards. You just say, God, just get me out of the situation. But, but we realized that God was doing something supernatural for, for Turkey. And so now we say, keep your eye on Turkey and watch what God is going to do because he is going to bring about a spiritual harvest in that place. And this whole story wasn't about us primarily. I mean, yes, we were in the tip of it. But it was really about what God is intending to do in Turkey and then spilling over into the old Ottoman Empire. So it was what a privilege, what a humbling thing to be at the center of that. Um, as Andrew says, you want to receive all this prayer. You also don't want to be in the position where you're needing to receive all this prayer. But anyway, the end result was was his deliverance, physical deliverance. And I believe it's going to be for the spiritual uh, salvation of millions of Turks. So there, there are two things in parallel. You ask what's happening in Turkey, what will happen. One is that I think things will become much worse before they get better. Uh, and that's there will be oppression and there's uh, spiritual darkness and it will become more difficult. At the same time, parallel to that, there's going to be a powerful move of God. <laughs> so we believe that there will be this powerful move of God that takes place in difficult circumstances. So if you keep your eyes on Turkey, you will see some very bad news, but you will start to see God working and many people turning. And when God has spoken to Andrew in 2009, said prepare for harvest, and then in the next, in the following years, it would repeat it, it would come up again and again that harvest will come, but it's going to come in difficulty. Now, we didn't know what that would look like. We could not have anticipated the attempted uh, coup or the economic difficulties or the crackdown that came after the coup, but but we knew that it was going to come in difficult times. There was going to be a, a shaking 
uh, of the foundation of the Turks because the truth is there's been quite a bit of um, openness to share the gospel there compared to other countries in the region, but very little spiritual interest uh, on the part of the Turks, and God is going to change us. said last night that it is a decision of the will to turn your face toward God in suffering. Can you talk about that? Um, your suffering is particular to you as all of each individual suffering is particular to them. But can you talk about that growth experience you went through while you were imprisoned? Yeah, so I, I ended up in prison and I was tested in all of the uh, means that I used to cultivate real, uh intimacy with God. I was severely tested in them. But I think sometimes people say to me, well, you had a real test in prison. And I think, yeah. And, and my problems aren't as big as yours. I say, well, the, my, my test may have been more difficult in some ways, but the tests that you have are, are more than enough for you. <laughs> and uh, we all will be tested in the same areas. The means of testing may be different. I may be in prison. You you may not be. But we our hearts will be tested in the same areas probably. And what I had to learn was, as you mentioned, a decision of the will very intentionally, uh, not according to my feelings. I didn't feel good. I didn't feel happy. I didn't feel God's presence. But I had to make a decision. I am going to discipline myself and intentionally turn toward God again and again and again throughout the day, every day. It was a battle. So in a sense, I was, I think of learning to stand in the dark. Uh, This was one of my uh, main verses, uh, was Isaiah 50, verse 10, where God says, uh, to him who walks in darkness and has no light, trust in the name of your God and lean on him. And God is speaking to Israel, who was they were in exile. So he knows they're in the dark, and he could remove the darkness. <laughs> but he doesn't say, okay, I'm going to remove the darkness. So he says, as you continue in the dark, he's leaving them in that period of, of difficulty. As you walk in darkness, lean into me. And so for your listeners, they will be tested. Every one of us is tested. God allows his children to go through difficult things. And it's important thing to know is it's not his loyalty and love that are being tested. They are constant. It is my love and my loyalty uh, that are being tested. Will I be faithful to him? Will I be loyal to him? Will I continue to love him even if I feel abandoned? Which he doesn't abandon, but we may feel that way. And that's a a decision of the will. Uh, One of the things that the way I ended my time Well, let me start that over. Uh, Right after my third trial appearance, I I was very distraught. It had been very difficult. I was sent back to prison for another three months till the next trial appearance. Uh, And I was reading in John 18 where one of the disciples says to Jesus, you know, you don't need to go to the cross. And Jesus said, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Shall I not drink the cup? 
And it's a rhetorical question. Of course I need to drink the cup that the Father has given me. And these words just echoed in my mind again and again over the next few days. And I, I said, God, I need to be willing to drink the cup. Yes, I want to drink the cup. The plans that you have for me, I want to, down to the dregs. All the plans that you have for me, whatever assignments, I don't want to lose a single one of them. So give me endurance so that I can strength, so that I can persevere in this. And I wrote this to Noreen. I want to drink the cup. That's a decision of the will. I don't feel like it. It's a decision I am pressing into. I want to be faithful, God. I wrote this in a letter to her. The very next day I was released to house arrest. And I I took this letter back to her and I said, Noreen, I want you to see this, that in God's grace, this is how I ended my time in prison, was at a point of submission, saying, I submit to you. I submit my will to you. So that's what we're aiming for. Whatever whatever your your tests are, we want to survive spiritually in the valley of testing and come out uh, leaning on our God. This concludes our conversation with Andrew and Noreen Brunson. After praying for Andrew for so long, it was emotional to sit with him and see him in the flesh and free. We want to thank our friends at Grove City College, President Paul McNulty, Jackie Mueller, and Dean Weaver, Interim Chaplain. If you missed any portion of the interview, Find us on our website, johnandkathyshow.com, or download the conversation from wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Ride Home with John and Kathy here on Word FM. The Ride Home with John and Kathy, a production of Salem Media Group.